Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. As director of the Middle East Center, it is my tremendous pleasure to welcome you all to the 42nd annual Antonius Lecture. Established in 1976 by the late George Scanlon, professor of Islamic archaeology at the American University in Cairo and a long-standing friend of our Middle East Center community, the Antonius Lecture has developed into the culminating event of the academic year for all of us in the Middle East Center. We have organized 43 lectures since George Mukdesi gave the inaugural Antonius. Now, as I'm saying that, I realize I got the number wrong. We've organized 42 lectures since George Mukdesi gave the inaugural lecture on the origin and development of the college in Islam and the West. Only once have we had to cancel an Antonius in 2011, when BBC Middle East editor Jeremy Bowen was called away at short notice on a very urgent story. It was called the Arab Spring. Otherwise, we've enjoyed an uninterrupted stream of scholars, statesmen, and intellectuals who have expanded our grasp of the Middle East in all of its aspects. A string of Middle East Center scholars, starting with our founding father, Albert Hurani, but followed by Mustafa Badawi, Roger Owen, Derek Hopwood, and our honorary fellow, Roger Lewis, who I'm delighted to see with us tonight. We had the framers of the Orientalism debate, Norman Daniels and Edward Said, the remarkable architect, Zaha Hadid, who gave us the magnificent building in which we are holding tonight's lecture, the courageous public intellectual, Noam Chomsky. The list goes on, 41 names in all, and tonight we will inscribe a 42nd name in that role of honor. Dr. Monsif Marzouki has served the people of Tunisia for all of his adult life. Son of an opposition figure persecuted by the Bourguiba regime, Dr. Marzouki was raised in Morocco. He finished his medical studies in France and returned to his native Tunisia in 1979 to establish the Center for Community Medicine in Sous. Even while pursuing his medical practice, he played a vital role as a human rights activist in the Tunisian League for Human Rights, the National Committee for the Defense of Prisoners of Conscience, the National Committee for Liberties, and subsequently as president of the Arab Commission for Human Rights. One of the fundamental rights of citizens that Dr. Marzouki defended in particular was political freedom. He condemned the Ben Ali regime's crackdown on the Islamist and Nahada party in 1991, and in 2001 he founded an opposition political party called the Congress for the Republic. When the party was banned the following year, he went into exile in France. But the moment Tunisians rose in defense of their own political rights at the end of 2010, Dr. Marzouki planned his return to Tunisia with his intention to engage in the feverish political activity that followed the toppling of Ben Ali's government in January of 2011. By December of that same year, he would be elected president of Tunisia by the overwhelming majority of votes in the Constituent Assembly of Tunisia. In his three years as president, during which time the Constituent Assembly debated the drafting of a new constitution for the country, he played a key role in shaping the political future of post-revolutionary Tunisia. He bridged left and right, Islamists and secularists, ruling through a coalition of the Islamic Ennahda, the centrist Atakatol, and his own left-wing Congress for the Republic Party. They overcame their differences through the common goal of establishing a democracy for Tunisia that would last. During his term of office, President Marzouki led by example, 
He cut his own salary by two-thirds as a gesture of solidarity in addressing the country's deteriorating financial situation. He lifted the state of emergency that had suspended the rule of law in his country. And he played a leading role in establishing the Truth and Dignity Commission to foster national reconciliation and bring justice to the victims of the Ben Ali regime. Perhaps his greatest contribution to the culture of post-revolutionary Tunisia came when, after a closely fought electoral campaign, he conceded defeat in 2014 and transferred power to his rival, Beji Kaid Esebsi. One of the main architects of Tunisia's transformation from autocracy to democracy, Monsef Marzouki has established his place in our history books. It is thus my great honor to present him to you as our 42nd Antonian Lecture. His title, The Tunisian Revolution, Achievements and Disillusions. Would you please join me in warmly welcoming Dr. Monsef Thank you, Professor Rogan, for this generous, very generous introduction and for the invitation to address this English gathering. I have always admired Oxford's commitment to academic excellence, and it is therefore a great honor for me to be here at St. Anthony's College. I would like also to thank all of you to be here today, and thank you also for your interest in the democratic transition still going on in my country. As you know, December 12, 2011, the Tunisian Constituent Assembly democratically and transparently elected me as president. It has been a great honor for me to fulfill that mission. During 30 years in the opposition, mainly as a human rights activist, and during three years as president, I was both an actor and a witness of major changes in the social and political system in Tunisia and in the Arab world. What can I tell you from this experience? Many countries have entered into democratic transitions since the 70s in Western Europe, Eastern Europe, South America, or in Africa. Tunisia is just a newcomer in this process. However, it is an interesting laboratory dealing with specific problems unknown in Europe or South America. For example, how can a democracy reach a modus vivendi with Islam? that is not simply a religion, as you know, but also a political system. How to survive in a context of serious economic crisis when it is difficult for the poorest part of the population to make the link between freedom and development? In fact, we have historical experiment underway currently in Tunisia and even in the Arab world, and there are some great lessons that I learned and that I would like to share with you today. The first lesson is about the very principle of transition to democracy. The idea evokes a rather peaceful and irreversible process that makes us move from one situation to a better or more advanced other one. But the reality is quite different. The reality is that the transition to democracy is an extremely difficult, chaotic process that takes a long time and may succeed or fail. It's also a very frustrating period with some achievement, but also with many, many disillusion. Allow me to begin with the achievements, just because it's easier and less painful for me than talking about disappointments. So let's begin with the achievements. When Ben Ali fled the country on January 14, 2011, and during the following months, 
What I found most inspiring was the collective psychological transformation of the population. I felt that the revolution was a kind of therapy that cured Tunisia from flaws they were ashamed of for so many decades. Fear, humiliation, disrespect, etc. I watched with great joy the formation of new behaviors. People became less hostile, friendlier, and I can say even happier. They even started to drive better and to respect traffic lights. <laughs> yes, it's true. Fortunately, the expectations were very high. So you can understand that the disappointment also are very cruel. However, despite all the difficulties, the Tunisians are aware of having accomplished something great, being a free people for the first time of their history. And this hard-won freedom will not easily taken away by any other Benali. That's I am sure. The second achievement of the revolution is the establishment of the institution of a democratic state. In fact, a revolution is a kind of aggiornamento. That's to say, a process through which a people updates its political regime so that it reflects its goals and mainly the actual balance of power within the society. Today, the new political system in Tunisia is much more in line with the people's aspirations and needs. The election on October 23, 2011 of the National Constituent Assembly was a major achievement. For the first time in their history, Tunisians were able to freely choose their representative, putting an end to the four decades long cycle of deceitful consultation periodically organized by the dictatorship. The main outcome on January 27, 2014 was the adoption by the Constituent Assembly of the first democratic constitution in the country's history. And like the 1861 and 1959 constitution, the 2014 constitution was not granted to the people by a ruler. The people, through its representatives, freely and collectively chose its fundamental law. But more than the text itself, more than the text itself, it was the process of its writing that was completely new, was the innovative phenomenon. Imagine that hundreds of meetings, including the most remote provinces of the countryside, hearing and debates of outstanding quality, lengthy negotiations sometimes about just one word. You cannot imagine how many hours we spend discussing the word Sharia. Thousands of hours just about this single word. Made the constitution writing process a truly collective and deliberative process. One of the most important provisions of the Constitution also is about decentralization. Dictatorship is based not only on cult of personality alongside the power of a single party. It also thrives on extreme centralization, a bureaucracy that is not all accountable to citizens decides about every single matter. For the first time in its history, the organ of power in Tunis had to cede some of their prerogative to the periphery. It was equally important to create structure independent of the state, to check and regulate its permanent authoritarian temptation. Three such structures were created. One to organize and supervise fair election, one to guarantee pluralistic information, and the third to protect the independence of the judiciary. Most importantly, the law on transitional justice established the Truth and Dignity Commission that was tasked with the critically important mission of examining human rights and political right abuses of the entire post-independent era. 
to this day, only one important element of the democratic mechanism provided by the Constitution remains to be created, the Constitutional Court. Political conflicts have until now made it impossible to reach a consensus on its composition. Well, this is about the achievement. Does that mean it will take just a few more years to fully consolidate our achievements? I would like to believe so. What I learned is that a transition does not end when the democratic institutions are installed or when the best constitution is adopted. It takes a new turn that can be as difficult and as dangerous than before the fall of the dictatorship. A transition process, in fact, can stop or even reverse itself. And this is, unfortunately, what's happening currently in Tunisia. I had been extremely surprised when I was president by how quickly the old system resurfaced and took advantage of the new democratic freedoms. That was the most important surprise. The revolution brought freedom of expression, but it was the corrupt media who benefited the most and used it to destroy the image of the revolution. The revolution brought freedom of association. However, some corrupt political parties, financed by local and foreign modern money, created electoral machines that have won more seats in the parliament than the democratic parties that have fought against the dictatorship since the 1990s. The revolution allowed free elections, but some political parties did not hesitate to buy the votes of thousands of poor citizens. In fact, counter-revolution forces have simply hijacked the very mechanism of democracy to destroy democracy. I am very often asked, why did we let the old system pervert the foundation of the democratic system? It has always fought while I was in the government. I was president. and uh, It's your responsibility. Why did you accept such a thing? Let me emphasize the, the fact that those who took power in 2011 were all former political prisoners or human rights activists. We were also very proud that our revolution was one of the most peaceful ones in the world, probably in history. So it was appealing to believe that we could avoid a repressive-based transition. However, we were wrong. We were wrong. This was the most painful lesson I learned. And now I take all my responsibility because I'm going to say something which will be used against me when I come back to Tunisia, but I assume it. A revolution should not seek any compromise with the corrupt elite that has led the country to instability and revolt. Either we get rid of it, of course by legal and peaceful and non-violent means, or it eventually will come back and use everything to undermine the democratic system. This is exactly what happened in Tunisia. The 2014 election brought back a significant part of the ancien regime to power with its methods of surveillance and repression. Here I'm going just to give you some facts, information. It's not my opinion as opponent or as frustrated former head of state. It's just facts. Amnesty International in 2016 began reporting against cases of torture that had virtually disappeared between 2011 and 2014. Tunisian journalists declared February 3, 2018 a day of anger to protest the growing harassment of the press in the country. In a report published last January, the International Crisis Group expressed it quote, great concern about the slowdown or even the reversal of the democratic process and warned that the risk 
of new authoritarian turn. ICG advised the president to speed the process of establishing the new institution planned by the Constitution, notably the Constitutional Court. In 2017, the EU included Tunisia in the list of 17 countries considered as tax havens. That some year, despite fierce opposition from civil society and opposition parties, Parliament passed an amnesty law granting immunity to the financial crime such as corruption during the Ben Ali era. This effectively serves as a pardon for the pervasive corruption by the ancien regime business persons. The establishment of the Truth and Dignity Commission, which was the great achievement of the revolution. The current government has done everything to sabotage its work. At the end of April 2018, the parliament, controlled by the president's party, tried to terminate the mandate of the commission. Strong protests forced the government to back down. However, the commission continues to face the hostility of the government. This is the current situation of the first objective of the revolution, to establish and promote democratic institutions. What about the second objective? Developing the provinces of the hinterland, promoting more social justice, and fighting corruption and employment, especially among graduates. Once again, I don't want you to believe that I speak as frustrated former head of state. This is why I'm going to quote a political official. I'm not going to name him, but just give you what he said. I quote, The deterioration of the purchasing power of the Tunisian people. This is his own diagnosis. The terrible collapse of the economic indicators. The terrible collapse of the economic indicators. The collapse of the value of the dinar, local currency. The huge financial crisis. The reliance on debt to pay wages. The absence of any vision of economic reform. The antagonism with the social actors. The unprecedented, and unprecedented collapse of the state reserve of foreign currency. The specter of bankruptcy threatening social funds. End of quote. This diagnosis is neither mine nor any other opposition leader. It's a diagnosis proposed by Mr. Hafez Essebsi himself, the leader of the ruling party <coughs> and the president's son. What does this mean in terms of social and economic development? That the countryside provinces where the revolution started are still waiting for development. That the hundreds of thousands of unemployed young people, especially graduates, see their number increase and not decrease, and that the Tunisian middle class is getting poorer every day. How to explain the situation? It's not only the fault of the government, I would say. A number of factors have led to the current situation. The most important is the political instability since 2011. Transitional governments cannot launch major structural reform that would absorb some of the massive unemployment. Both domestic and foreign investors are waiting for political stability. In other words, both political and economic actors are essentially in wait and see stand. The second major cause of the current economic situation is the return of power of large part of the business elite that is tied to the ancien regime and the widespread normalization of corruption at every level of government. So the question today for Tunisia is, have we gone from a corrupt dictatorship 
to corrupt democracy. Other important lesson is the success or failure of transition to democracy. Well, I would say that if you want your transition to succeed, you have to take on account the economic problem. Otherwise, it's just you know, nothing. During the municipal election campaign last month, I traveled the country to call the citizens to vote. Everywhere, everywhere, people, especially the youth, seemed suspicious, bitter, disappointed, disgusted with the political actors, and less and less interested in the elections. For the poor and middle classes, social and economic rights take precedence over freedoms of speech and freedom of association. For the elite, it's difficult to accept, but this is the reality. This is the reality on the ground. I'm afraid that in Tunisia, like in many other countries, the majority, the majority would tend to accept a Chinese steel regime if it brings them prosperity, more than they would accept a British-style regime if it brings them only poverty and instability. It's difficult to accept, but this is the truth. So one must not forget that in the 1950s, parliamentary regime established in countries like Egypt, Iraq, or Syria were swept away by coup. And no one regretted them because they had brought only more privileges to the minority and nothing to the majority. This is probably the most important lesson of our transition. Reform of political institution, of course, it's extremely important, etc., etc. We badly need it, etc., etc. But in a country that tackling a huge unemployment problem like Tunisia, it's not sufficient at all. It's not sufficient to build democracy on solid foundation. If the Tunisian democracy fails to solve the social and economic problems of the people, it may, I hope not, of course, I will do everything that this doesn't happen, but it may end up being a mere intermission between two dictatorships. Of course, we will do everything to avoid such a disaster, because it would be a disaster. I am convinced that Tunisia can recover and continue the transition. I'm deeply convinced of that. Why? I'm often asked why is that the Tunisian revolution proved more successful, more peaceful than the Egyptian and Libyan revolutions, and how Tunisia avoided the chaotic power struggle that are presently undermining other Arabs. It's true that we have been so far relatively lucky, more fortunate. However, it's not because we are different or better or smarter. If Tunisia escaped the dismal fate of Libya, Egypt, Syria, or Yemen, it is essentially because of the very structure of the Tunisian society. This is why I'm a little bit optimist. For example, unlike Syria, Tunisia is a quite homogeneous society with no major ethnic or religion divides. Unlike Libya or Yemen, Tunisia is a society with limited tribal influence. Tunisia has a very strong civil society. It has also significant educated middle class extremely important. The Tunisian military, unlike the Egyptian counterpart, does not interfere with political or economic matters. Fortunately also, Tunisia is far from the Middle East battlefields, and some people would say unfortunately, but I say fortunately, we do not have enough oil to attract the greed of regional and world powers. The country has maintained a strong connection also with Europe, especially with France. This means that ideas that prevail in Europe make their way into Tunisia and have a deep and lasting impact. For all these reasons, Tunisia has often been the first Arab country to initiate important modern social and political reforms. 
about being the first. I remember that uh, several years ago, a Syrian friend and I were chatting about the early stage of the human rights movement in the Arab world. I, I invariably said, uh, with the creation of Tunisian Human Rights League in 1977, the movement was born in Tunisia. Uh, my friend got uh, quite upset. I'm fed up, he said, with how Tunisians claim to be... This is our internal problems for people who <laughs> do not, don't know the Arab world. I'm so fed up, he said, with how Tunisians claim all the time to be pioneer in all matters. He then reminded me that the first Arab League for Human Rights was born in Syria in 1961. I said, okay, okay, okay. I said, nothing. I have learned since then to be more cautious when talking with my fellow Arab friends about Tunisia's place in the Arab world. I now say that Tunisia is among the first <laughs> Arab countries that have granted key political and social rights to the citizens. But in fact, Tunisia was the first Arab country to abolish slavery in 1841, well before the United States. The first in 1861 to have a constitution. The first to have a powerful labor union since the 1920s. The first since 56 to abolish polygamy and to implement a consistent policy in favor of women's rights. The first to have a robust and organized civil society. Finally, yet importantly, without any possible dispute, Tunisia was in 2010 the first Arab country to start a democratic and peaceful revolution that transformed the whole region. But once again, once again, Tunisians can be proud of what they have achieved, but they must not, never forget that this relative success is mainly due to historical geographical factors that do not depend on them. So, because we have good cards, it would be a crime to waste them. We must continue our fights for a democratic state and a more just society, and to be very patient and very determined. Another lesson also I have learned, that a revolution is just a beginning, it just a turning point in a democratic transition, just a turning point. It's neither its end nor its beginning. Indeed, the transition always begins decades before the outbreak of the revolution and probably must go on decades after the revolution. This is what I'm convinced about. You need a coup to establish a dictatorship, but there is no such thing as a coup to establish a democracy. For instance, Tunisia, the transition has begun, in fact, to democracy has begun four decades before the first free and fair election in October 2000. I'm going to give some detail just that you understand how difficult it was. Please be patient with me. It was in the 1970s that the democratic values slowly began to spread within the elite and the rapidly expanding middle class. It was also that time that Islamist ideas began to conquer hearts and mind in the same social elite. The worldwide decline of the communist ideology also benefited the rise of both the democratic and Islamist ideas that will conflict, will be in opposition. Some small parties, more or less tolerated by the ruling party, stood for the democratic project. But however, it was mainly the civil society that pushed this project forward in Tunisia from the 1970s to the year 2000. Beginning of the year 2000, the struggle against dictatorship turned into a more openly political struggle. As chair of the Tunisian League for Human Rights from 1989 to 1994, I realized early that the civil society can limit the cruelty perpetrated by the dictatorship 
but cannot bring down the entire system. It's, it's not, it's wrong. This is why I decided to get involved in politics, and this is why I ran for president in the election of 1994, in order to challenge the rule that was then tacitly accepted through the Arab world and according to which the president is there for life and no one can confront him. That costed me four months in solitary confinement. However, in 1999 and 2004, the dictator felt pressured to organize false pluralistic elections. But this was already a step forward. I knew that the process would continue and that we would eventually have real democratic election. In 2001, I created a political party, the Congress for the Republic. Its objective was made clear and public from day one to defeat dictatorship. Few people know that in 2003, the main opposition party met in Aix-en-Provence in France. After three days and two nights, a text was adopted and provided the basis for the first draft of the future constitution of 2014. Some of the people participating in the discussion would form the first democratic government in all the history of Tunisia. In 2006, during the live Al Jazeera show, I called on the Tunisian people to engage in civil disobedience to end the dictatorship. But I had to wait four years before seeing my dream come true. These are just some key moments that have paved the long, difficult, and dangerous way to our current democratic system. It's more than likely that the challenges ahead are just as numerous and maybe even more dangerous if we consider the regional and international context. And now I would like to turn to the last and probably also very painful lesson about transition to democracy, that you have to be very, very careful about the regional and international context. Tunisia was not an island, and we suffered a lot from the intervention of these uh, external factors. You probably know that the Tunisian revolution was led by youth that could no longer accept its economic and political marginalization and that they didn't get orders from any foreign countries. No money, no orders, nothing. It was really a genuine revolution. And this, this is why it took by surprise everybody, including all the secret services, friends and foes alike. Its rapid contagion to Egypt, Libya, Syria, and Yemen alarmed the conservative Arab regimes who feared that the wave of democratic revolution could sweep over their countries and take away their home, their thrones. Very quickly, small, even unknown country for us, far away, called the United Arab Emirates, launched a crusade against the Arab Spring in general and against Tunisia in particular through financing the counter-revolution this tiny, small, unknown country, unfortunately, was extremely rich, and its money was used to undermine the whole process, the democratic process, and the whole Arab world, everywhere. This country is a plan for us, for the Arab nation, uh, say the regime of this country, of course. Everyone in Tunisia knew that the money from the Emirates was behind some important media and political parties among the most hostile to the revolution. In all the countries of the Arab Spring, the transition has had to face the hostility and determination of the Arab reactionary regime, especially the Emirates and Saudi Arabia. It was clear that the counter-revolution in the Arab world had decided to abort the Arab Spring through civil war in Libya, 
Syria, Yemen, through a coup in Egypt, and through the confiscation and pervasion of the mechanism of democracy in Tunisia. Unfortunately, we didn't get a lot of support from uh, Western governments. The support, in fact, was extremely modest, and we have seen even major Western countries accept, I think, with uh, great joy, the coup in Egypt. It was, I would say it was a surprise for me because during my opposition years, I have discussed it with a lot of European leaders and they, they used it to say, look, we don't like dictatorship, of course, we don't like Ben Ali, we don't like Gaddafi, we don't like Mubarak, but look, stability is extremely important. They are they're preventing illegal immigration and so forth, and we are afraid of... Uh, and they used to say, look, okay, but don't forget that this guy, they are preparing... A revolution. They are the principal factor of a revolution, so be very careful. And now they, I think it's this, they are repeating the same error by supporting regimes like Assisi regime. They are supporting the same because there will be a new blast, a new explosion in Asia. So this is why, we, in fact, we can rely only on ourselves and I hope on Western civil society, but we must rely on ourselves. We must not rely on any Western government. It's clear that, in fact, democracy is important for them, but within their own country. But I don't think that they are interested in promoting democracy in the Arab world. For many, many other reasons, maybe we can discuss this issue later on. This is why the Arab Democrats should have a common strategy and work together to defend and promote common values and interests against the Arab dictatorship policies united in their decision to prevent any process of democratization wherever it begins. This is why the Council for the Defense of Democratic Revolutions was created three years ago in which politicians, civil society activists, and young people from many Arab countries meet and coordinate their efforts. In conclusion, I can say that today that the Arab world, the transition is at standstill, even in Tunisia. The revolution seems to have failed, but the counter-revolution too. Men and women have been fighting for seven years in Libya, Yemen, and Syria, preventing in bloody wars, terrible wars, the return of the dictatorship. In Tunisia, and as in Egypt, the population are even more disappointed by the return of the ancien regime than by the revolution itself, because economic and social problems have worsened in both countries. For me, the problem is not whether there will be a second wave of revolutions, but when. I do believe that in Tunisia, at least, we will not have to start all over again, but to resume the process where it stopped. In spite of all the present challenges, I do believe that the current phase will not last long, because the people's vigilance remains strong. While this collective energy and renewed civility has been undermined by the ongoing difficulties, it remains an important asset for the democratic process. The younger generation, I call the E-generation, will never accept to live under the type of regime that oppressed the previous generation and had led our country to the catastrophic current situation. Having spent the last years speaking in 2000 of Tunisian about the revolution and its aftermath, I am confident that the thirst for social justice and freedom is still strong and the, our transition to democracy would continue and I hope would prevail. I am steadfast in my commitment to working with the Tunisian people to advance social justice and to protect our democratic gains. And I think it's not my own fight, it's the struggle and the fight of, all, of a, a nation, of a, of a people.
So thank you for your attention. I look forward to your questions and insight and to discussion the long road ahead. <laughs>